This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program, my name is Amy Perez. I am a migrant from Obregón, Sonora, Mexico. El Paso, where Border Patrol says more than a thousand migrants are crossing into the area a day. Most people don't want to leave. They leave because they feel like there's no other option but to leave. Which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast? You just can't push back people at borders without actually, if they're seeking international protection, they need to be afforded that right to seek asylum. Getting off a boat and strutting up the shingle, wearing Nike trainers, carrying smartphones, I'm sorry, but that's not a refugee. The conversation is toxic, divisive, and dangerous. Refugees are forced to leave their countries because of war, conflict, uh, human rights violations. Basically, their lives are in danger. Does the UNHCR or the IOM have the power to prosecute signatory countries if they violate their obligations to UN conventions? Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. And guess what? We are back in a proper studio, which is a delight to me and my guests, Shabia Mantu of the UN Refugee Agency and Paul Dillon of the International Organization for Migration. And the reason they are here is because something happened that we always want to happen uh, um, at the Inside Geneva team. Our listeners have been writing to us and saying, We'd really like to know, particularly about this hotly disputed subject of refugees, asylum seekers, migrants. How do the Geneva organizations who deal with those topics work? What can they really do? What are the limits of what they can do? What successes do they have? How does international law govern their work? So welcome to you both. And the best thing about these listeners contacting us is that they have not only written, they have recorded their questions and sent them in. So we're going to go straight in and hear those questions. And the first one is from Charlotte. Let's have a listen to what she has to say. Hi, my name is Charlotte Schertz, and I currently work in the United States in Phoenix, Arizona, as a community integration supervisor for a local refugee resettlement agency. My first question is, what does the UNHCR actually do? What is their role from the moment a conflict is declared, and how is the IOM involved? Thank you might sound like a basic question to both of you because you're dealing with this day in, day out. But the fact is, we know there are misconceptions. Shabia, I'm going to start with you first. What do you actually do? And then, Paul, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Thank you very much, Imogen, and, and very nice to be back here in person with, with you both. So it's a really good question. UNHCR is the UN Refugee Agency. So it's been mandated with responsibility for refugees and we deal as an agency with issues related to forced dis displacement and statelessness. So the type of people we help, these are refugees, asylum seekers, um, also those who have newly returned back to their homes 
as well as internally displaced and stateless people. And internally displaced people, unlike refugees, are those who haven't crossed international borders but are displaced inside their own countries. So we were set up in the aftermath of the Second World War when there was mass displacement and we were tasked to, to help protect, uh, assist and find homes for those that had been displaced. And more than 70 years later, our work continues to this day. Um, but we are uh, crucially the UN entity charged with responsibility for ensuring that states adhere to their obligations towards refugees. Across the world, we're working in some 137 countries, and some of those are refugee-receiving countries where there might be a humanitarian crisis. Some other of those countries might be places where there is internal displacement uh, or a mixture of both. It's really our work is in relation to the protection and assistance of forcibly displaced and stateless people. Of which, sadly, there <clears throat> are many millions on our planet because we don't seem to be able to learn how to stop fighting. Paul Dillon, International Organization for Migration, where does the IOM fit in here? I think um, it's interesting the trajectories between the two organizations are so similar in so many ways. I mean, IOM was uh, created in 1951 uh, to respond to the needs of millions of uh, people displaced in Europe by uh, the Second World War and to uh, assist with their uh, return and or resettlement uh, overseas to other countries, Argentina, Australia, Canada, and elsewhere. And this has remained a core part of IOM's operational functions 71 years on. Our assisted voluntary return programs, for example, operate to help those who are stranded mid-journey to return voluntarily to their countries of origin. The organization that started off essentially as a grand logistics operation uh, has branched out and uh, elaborated upon its mandate quite substantially ever since. Uh, we are now heavily invested in humanitarian responses. We are working in all the major pressure points around the world from Ukraine and Libya to assisting with Venezuelans who've left their country, as well as internal displacement camps, refugee camps around the world. Indeed, with you, our colleagues at UNHCR were co-leads on the uh, camp coordination camp management cluster <clears throat> within the UN. So we have a, a broad scope of experience uh, within uh, that particular framework. Our policy work is essential to maintaining our relations with our 174 member states so we work very closely with those member states to help them to manage migration better, as it were, for the benefit of all. You know, I think it's really interesting. You both pointed out that your organizations were set up after the Second World War when there was clearly an almost global consciousness that we shouldn't go down that road again. And yet here we have our next question from Dragan, who is a refugee from another conflict 50 years later. Hello, my name is Dragan Subotic. Uh, I'm former refugee from former Yugoslavia, and my question is, uh, how does uh, the UNHCR or IOM designate that one population qualifies under the refugee definition? And what's the difference between asylum seekers, stateless populations, and undocumented migrants? Thank you. So this is a, a really good question, isn't it? And one that we were just having a coffee before we came into the studio. Paul, you pointed out that you're getting journalists writing stories and they don't know the difference. Yeah, you're absolutely right. As a former journalist, I know that in my past covering um, displacement in Afghanistan, for example, or Burma or and other countries, Indonesia, that I frequently conflated the term refugee and migrant. 
and made no strong distinction between them. What I can tell you from IOM's perspective is that there is no internationally agreed upon definition for what a migrant is. For our purposes, we define migrants as people who have left their uh, usual place of domicile for a wide variety of reasons, uh, many moving internally within the countries in which they were born and raised, others uh, across international borders. And these, things, these movements occur for a wide range of reasons. Many are voluntary. Students move within their own countries and elsewhere uh, in search of better educational opportunities. I think everyone in this room here in Geneva this afternoon would define themselves as a labor migrant as we are no longer living in our country uh, of origin and instead are pursuing our livelihoods outside. And so there's a fairly broad catchment. And uh, the most recent uh, statistics in terms of the numbers of international migrants is about 281 million people, about 3.8% of the global population, which is interesting in as much as it's a tripling since the 1970s. But at the same time, the actual percentage of people who would be defined as migrants is relatively unchanged over the last 30 or 40 years. Shabia, let's hear it from the UN Refugee Agency. What exactly, legally, is a refugee? So it's a very um, important question because words matter and they have actual meanings and also implications in how we describe movements of people and the, the reasons that people are forced or maybe voluntarily choose to leave. So refugees are a specific category of people that are defined and protected under international law. They're forced to leave their countries because of war, conflict, uh, human rights violations, persecution. Basically, their lives are in danger or jeopardy or they face great risks and harm. So refugees are people who are fleeing for these reasons and they cross international borders. Um, so then they're no longer in their, their countries. Um, but then there are obligations on the international community, on the other countries to fulfill their duties towards them. They're obliged to ensure that these people are not returned to situations of danger, but that these people have the right to seek asylum. And this is a fundamental human right. It's a universal right. The whole principle of uh, refugee protection or this concept of asylum, it's actually a universal concept that has existed since the beginning of time of protecting human life um, when it is in danger. So it's really important. So we see refugee movements in the world today, people who are fleeing wars, conflict, persecution, human rights violations, and they have specific um, protection uh, that is afforded to them. Asylum seekers are people who are seeking to be recognized as refugees, but their their claims are basically pending or being processed. Let's just be clear about that. Governments who signed the Convention on Refugees, they do have an obligation to assess asylum claims. They shouldn't be just saying, no, we're not interested, go home. Well, that's the thing. You just can't push back people at borders without actually, if they're seeking international protection, they need to be afforded that right to seek that international protection to seek asylum. So that has to be there. And that's what we see. There are people with what we call refugee um, profiles and, and migrants who are often traveling on these same movements we find in many parts of the world. But those that have specific protection needs that are seeking asylum, they need to be able to access that. So that's really crucial. You just can't send them back because then their lives will be in danger and that's not in, in keeping up with, with the international legal responsibilities. And I know the question was also about uh, stateless people. Statelessness, in my opinion, I think it's also one of the most invisible human rights issues uh, in the world today because you've got millions of people around the world who are basically not considered citizens of any state. Um, they're not nationals. And so because of that, they don't have the same 
access to rights and services that other citizens do have. Many of them live a life in the shadows and are precluded from accessing basic assistance. And somebody becomes stateless because they're born in a refugee camp, for example, they've not got a right to nationality there, they've lost the right in the country their parents may have fled from, things like that? Not necessarily. There are various reasons for statelessness. And in fact, some of the reasons are also a result of gender discriminatory nationality laws. A variety of of different circumstances can give rise to being stateless. Um, But there are also stateless refugees. We've seen the Rohingya, for instance, that have fled to Bangladesh. Um, So it's really important. Part of our work is also to address these issues. And we have a massive international campaign called the I Belong campaign, which was launched in 2014. That is there because we're also urging for action in addition to um, addressing the challenges of, of, of that force people to flee, but also to resolve and prevent people from becoming stateless. If I, I could just tie that mm-hmm. up in a bow, because I mean, it's interesting that you referenced uh, the Rohingya, because I mean, part of my job before I moved here to Geneva involved um, acting as an escort for refugee resettlements. There was a, a number of times when I flew from Southeast Asia to North America, one time in particular to Canada to escort a Rohingya woman and her three kids. And it's very striking, you know, when you consider, you know, we define ourselves as human beings and we have paper to support the argument that we exist. Um, But for these people, they do not. There is no place to call home. I mean, there's emotionally there are places to call home, but legally speaking, they don't enjoy the rights and responsibilities of citizenship anywhere. And it's a measure indeed of the of the collaborative relationship that's evolved over many years between IOM and UNHCR that, for example, if you're traveling through any of the major American airport hubs at some point in the last 20 or 30 years, you've probably seen groups of people standing with these very distinctive white IOM bags containing all of their legal documents. And that's because IOM has organized all of the logistics, the pre-departure medical clearances, cultural preparation work prior to refugees being resettled in the United States, in Canada, and a number of other countries. See, that is really, really interesting. And I suspect something that a lot of people who hold forth over coffee or a beer about migration and refugees just really don't know. And on that note, we've got two questions. One from Amy about how you challenge misinformation about migration, refugees, asylum. Hello, my name is Amy Perez. I am a migrant from Obregón, Sonora, Mexico, and a community engagement coordinator for refugees and asylum seekers. It's part of my job every day to educate people about refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants, as semantics and misinformation around these terms and populations are problematic and highly politicized in the U.S. So my question is, how do UNHCR and IOM challenge that? And who do you both lobby? Where, where's your letterbox at government level? Hi, my name is Jay Everly. I'm originally from North Dakota. I'm the executive assistant and part of the refugee advocacy team. My question for you is, does and can the UNHCR or IOM lobby or advocate to signatory countries to avoid such violations and ensure the respect of the Refugee Convention and 1967 Protocol? Shabia, I'll come to you first. Yeah, this is a, a huge uh, issue because I think that the misinformation or the disinformation out there, it really affects people's human lives and their rights. And I think it's also detached from reality. It's interesting because we we speak to, to various um, populations and audiences across the world. And when you ask them a simple question of where do you think the majority of the world's refugees are hosted, people tend to think it's their region or, you know, it's, it's Europe or it's America. 
And if you look at the statistics, um, 77% of the world's refugees today are hosted in low to middle income countries and a disproportionate number are in the world's least developed or low income countries itself. So these countries are actually hosting the bulk of responsibility sharing for the world's refugees. And they're also fulfilling their international legal obligations towards refugees. Very, very few numbers of refugees are actually in what we call the global north. But it, it's if you read some of the tabloids and you see the headlines, you, you could be completely convinced that the picture was different. And that sort of misrepresentation of facts and also the dehumanization of people, because we're not just talking about numbers, we're talking about human lives. I mean, before the wars and, and the conflict, whether it's uh, in Ukraine or Syria or Venezuela or Afghanistan, people there were not moving. They had to flee their countries because of the situation there. So it's really important that those people who fled such horrific circumstances, that they are treated with humanity, but also that their international legal rights are respected. So when we have this disinformation circulating about the nature of these movements and inflating the numbers and, and talking about an invasion, or etc., it really creates challenges for these people to be able to be protected and go on with, with their lives. So we communicate um, all the time with, with governments, with other stakeholders. We have um, what we call a whole of society response. So it's not just only, only states, but it's development partners, banks, academics, civil society, um, uh, faith leaders, etc. But it's really the responsibility for refugee protection. It's a global one. It's, and, and everyone has a role to play in that. What about you, Paul? When you when you get a call from a, a, a newspaper, as you were telling me about uh, just before we came on air, you know, some people come with their preconceptions. How hard is it to challenge them? I mean, you're a big organisation. Yeah. I mean, the conversation is toxic, divisive, and and dangerous. We work not within uh, within our silo, but as part of a broader a broader system to try and address this type of misinformation through fact based arguments. But at the end of the day, those are, those conversations are not really fact based; they're emotive, they're emotional, and it's you know it's interesting because. As you travel around and you meet people, of course you meet people who push back on on migration, on irregular migration, on refugees, on the other. But I'm always struck by the number of people who don't. And in the most unusual circumstances, you find people who are cognizant of the fact that they are the product of migratory journeys themselves. That group of people whose uh, opinions and their feelings about migration and, and migrants, generally people on the move, are shaped by their immediate experiences. The broader question is there, there's no 911 number to hit that you can call and say, how do you do this? IOM's approach is multifaceted. I mean, we work, again, as I said earlier, very closely with our member states on policy initiatives, but also part of that is to try and detoxify the conversations in those countries and to get government and subnational government buy-in, provincial, regional level government buy-in for approaches that are intended to educate and inform rather than to create divisions between people. And there's a couple of different ways we do that. In the Americas, uh, uh, we have a major uh, project there called Xenophobia Cero. It's a very well-regarded uh, Spanish language project, which is designed to address a lot of the misinformation, a lot of the toxicity around uh, the movements of migrants through the Americas. So we have a lot of We've read a lot of stuff in the last couple of years about the Darien Gap increasingly over the last few months, but the tens of thousands of people who are taking that dangerous journey through the gap to get into Central America on their way north. 
we uh, have in the last two years launched the Global Migration Media Academy. And in this regard, I think the media plays an absolutely essential role because you know, we started out part, part of this conversation saying, well, even the media sometimes don't know the difference between a migrant and a refugee, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Global Migration Media Academy initiative is an effort to bring young journalists, young media professionals, young influencers, because we cast a, we live in 2022, not 1982, uh, to bring them into the room and give them the facts and empower them with the data and the information and the language and the context that they need uh, to bring a more balanced sort of discourse to the pages and the web pages of, uh, of, their, of their respective media. To be it, we've got a couple of questions coming up which are really specifically for the UN Refugee Agency. So before coming back to Paul with some of our subsequent questions, we've got two here, one from Rasheen and one from Rafiki, which I'm going to ask you to answer together. Here's Rasheen. Hello, my name is Rosine. I am a migrant from Rwanda and a refugee employment specialist. So my question is how, when, and why does the UNHCR decide to set up a refugee camp in certain contexts or conflicts while they don't in others? And what is the UNHCR's role in these camps? Who is in charge of them? And they will go straight on to Rafiki because that's kind of the start of a refugee crisis. And Rafiki's question is more to the end. Hello, my name is Rafiki Nyonzima. I'm an asylee and a refugee employment supervisor. My question is, how does third country resettlement work? How do they work with these countries to resettle refugees? And lastly, why and how do countries decide to participate in third country resettlement? So there's kind of two big questions in one, but I thought I would put them together because it really is like there's the emergency at the start. Do you need to set up a camp? Why do you set up a camp? And then as time goes on, who really needs to be moved to a safe third country and why? How does that work? So it might be uh, quite interesting or surprising if we tell you that only one in five refugees live in camps globally. Our policy is actually to try and avoid camps wherever possible and to pursue alternatives to camps. And, and this is because living in local communities or integrating with local communities, they're able to achieve their independence when they're outside and able to access services um, and, and markets and everything else on par with, with the local population. We think that camps should be the exception, but it is the case sometimes that there's a refugee crisis that's just emerging and there's a sudden influx of people, but it's really up to the national authorities to decide where and how they will host those people that are being displaced. We work with governments, with other humanitarian partners to ensure that whether refugees are in camp settings or out of camps in urban or other environments, that we can advocate and ensure they have access to basic and, and crucial assistance and services. Um, so we work very in very close collaboration with the national governments, authorities, the wider humanitarian community and other partners to ensure that they have those uh, infrastructure and services and assistance. And then resettlement, we, we say it's actually a life-saving tool of protection um, to help those that are particularly vulnerable. We do know that the vast majority of the world's refugees are hosted in, in countries um, that are low to middle income countries. And 
There are some refugees there who might have specific needs. There might be survivors of of trafficking, people who have experienced torture or people at heightened risk or have particular needs that can't be met or, or, or they can't access that protection in the country of asylum. So this tool of resettlement, which is basically the movement of people from those countries of asylum to other countries that agree to admit them and grant them protection. It's available to less than 1% of the world's uh, refugees. And each year, what UNHCR does is we map out the projected resettlement needs across the world, and we present these needs to the states that are involved. And this is what we call the annual tripartite consultations on resettlement. (laughs) That's the UN jargon for you. (laughs) Exactly. But it is a very important meeting because it brings together all stakeholders that are involved in resettlement. But it really is up to the states to come forward with places and help support resettlement. It's also a very big objective in terms of ensuring a bit more equity and global responsibility sharing, because most of the world's refugees are hosted in these countries that are strained and that have developmental challenges or economic challenges. And they're being so generous, they are fulfilling their legal obligations, they're hosting refugees, but they need support. They're not the world's most richest countries. And so this is also a tool. I mean, again, we're talking about Lebanon, Pakistan, Uganda. I mean, many countries across Asia, Africa, the Middle East, the Americas, um, you look at the the top refugee hosting countries, and most of them are are these countries that are facing their own challenges. So it's it's a really tangible tool of solidarity sharing, as well as a life-saving tool of protection. So as to the question why states would do this, it's really to ensure that people's lives can be protected. We had a question about misinformation and whether you can lobby governments to honour their obligations under the Refugee Convention. We've got a question from Connie here about what your your sanctions, if you like, are if, if countries are not honouring their obligations. Hello, my name is Connie Phillips. I am the CEO and President at Lutheran Social Services in Phoenix, Arizona. And my question is this. Does the UNHCR or the IOM have the power to prosecute signatory countries if they violate their obligations to UN conventions? For example, the U.S. with the Migrant Protection Protocol, which, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, violates the principles of non-refoulement. Thank you. Well, I'm going to ask you that, Shabia, because it's the UN Refugee Convention, which is enshrined in, in international law. Most countries have signed it. Only this week you were calling out Malaysia for sending Rohingya back to Myanmar. But apart from calling out, what can you actually do? So it's a very, um, very good question as to compliance or accountability. It's interesting because I had a discussion about this with my colleagues who are our protection experts or our legal specialists. And one of the main messages that they really emphasized was really the consequence of refoulement is actually first and foremost an issue for the, the individual concerned who may be put at great risk um, of irreparable harm to their life and limb when they're forcibly returned to their country. Let's just be clear for, for um, I don't want to interrupt you, but listeners who may not be quite sure, refoulement means sending somebody back. It's it's a it's a fancy legal term for sending somebody back. Yeah, thanks Imogen for that. No, it's very important to clarify. So it's basically a legal principle which is binding on all states, prohibiting countries from basically sending people to another place where they will face 
threat to their lives or freedom. So it's binding and it's a principle of, of customary international law. It's a key provision of the Refugee Convention itself. So what happens if um, this happens and, and countries are doing this? First, uh, it can be enforced in the national law of many countries where this is, um, where affected individuals can actually come before the courts in these countries and show that their rights have been violated. It can also be enforced in regional courts, such as the European Convention on um, Human Rights, which can order payment of damages. And also it can be brought to the attention of the UN Human Rights Mechanisms as well, and they can also issue findings on this. UNHCR, in terms of the judicial engagement, it can take part as a party to the proceedings, either as an intervener or a friend of the court. But these are actions that are brought on behalf of Friend of, of the court. Did, did, you actually did this in the United Kingdom, didn't you, about this whole Rwanda on the uh, externalization. Indeed, UNHCR is, was involved as, as a friend of the court in that, but that is where our, our expertise and our concern for the way refugee protection is impacted in those arrangements. But in terms of, of compliance, I mean, for us, what we'd like to see is before we even get to that stage that these obligations are upheld. So that's why we're in continuous advocacy and dialogue with the countries concerned to make sure that refugee law is upheld and people's rights are protected. But it's really important at the end of the day, just to emphasize my main point was really this has life um, altering impacts on people. So we don't like to see this situation happen. It's really, really grave. And we'd like to think that uh, most countries in the world, if we look at the global picture of where refugees are fleeing, whether it's Ukraine or other countries, that they are able to access safety and protection. And so we did, and I mentioned Ukraine because I think we saw a remarkably swift action on states to protect and support people who have been affected by war, violence and persecution. And as, I said, as I've said to you before, Imogen as well, we'd like to see that replicated elsewhere and remember that everyone in these circumstances who are being forced to flee, they're really facing that, that danger in, the, in those circumstances and that's why they can't return home. Absolutely. I think you said at the time a refugee is a refugee, whether they're from Ukraine or Afghanistan or Syria or Yemen. People fleeing persecution are fleeing persecution. It's, you know, they shouldn't be one given a warmer welcome than the other. You're almost at the the end of Inside Geneva, but there's one uh, question which I really want to come to because at the end of the day, whether you're worried or angry about the subject of migration and asylum and refugees, or whether you're a refugee or an asylum seeker or a migrant yourself, you want a solution and you want really a permanent solution. So here is uh, Natsanet with a question about that. Hello, my name is Natsanet Kirane. I'm a former refugee from Ethiopia. And my question is, what about adorable solutions? How do the UNHCR and IAM work on this? Shabi, I'll come to you first, because, I mean, some refugees, as we know, won't ever be able to go home. The solutions are absolutely critical, and I'm so glad you asked this question, um, because our work is not just about protecting and assisting refugees. It's basically also ultimately enabling them uh, to find solutions. So for refugees, there are three types of solutions that we can en envisage. So one of them is voluntary repatriation or return back to their countries when it's safe for them to do so. And that's premised on that being voluntary. Some of these um, conflicts are so protracted that it's still quite dangerous for them to be able to, to go home. However, in saying that, 
We do see glimmers of hope. Um, some situations are there in which refugees are able to to then eventually go back to to their countries of origin. So that's one one option. The other is refugee resettlement. And that is really an option that's available only to a very, very small number of refugees in the world, because this is the movement of refugees from a country of asylum, so a country in which they've already fled. Their needs there might not be able to be met, and they might also face specific challenges in that country of asylum, or they might be at heightened risk. So it's up to states to put forward uh, resettlement spaces. That is an option for them. But again, it's an option for very few. And the third alternative is integration with the host community or the host country in which they have sought um, safety and protection. I mean, this is the kind of thing that's happening, for example, in Lebanon, Turkey. Well, well they, these are refugees who are, who are staying in the country of asylum, but local integration goes beyond that. It's a really about a, a long-term solution in that country of asylum for refugees. So they can stay there, they can benefit from permanent residency or, or citizenship. Um, so I think over the past decade, we've had, had about 1.1 million refugees who have become citizens in their country of asylum. So that that's also great. Then it enables them to be fully part of, of the society of, society, of the community, and to be able to rebuild their lives um, in, in a new country. Paul Dillon, IOM. It's the same question, but obviously you're going to be approaching this from a, de- a very different angle. But durable solutions. Yeah, I mean, I'm always, again, I'm always struck by the lay, by the uh, the overlay between uh, between IOM's programmatic work um, and that of UNHCR, because of course a big part of the IOM supported assisted voluntary return process is a reintegration package that goes with. So, for example, Libya is an excellent example of this, where we've had in the last few years, in excess of 50,000 migrants, predominantly from sub-Saharan Africa, who have found themselves in the most dire and abusive situations in Libya, who we've been able to return to their countries of origin. And part of that process is for our teams in the respective receiving countries to work with those returnees to build up their resilience and their ability to stay. Most people don't want to leave. They leave because they feel like there's no other option but to leave. Or it's so culturally inculcated that, you know, my my uncle did and my granddad did and my grandma went, my auntie went, so I'm on my way. And there are countries where it's literally stitched into the social fabric movement in search of work and a better and a better life. So this reintegration, these reintegration processes obviously are very important. But I want to I want to take a slightly different tack. One of the important conversations that's going on at COP uh, and will be and is part of the the fabric of climate change and, and how the international community responds to it is this whole issue of adaptation and providing people who are in these tenuous places. And I mean, I can tell you from having traveled extensively, particularly in Southeast Asia, that there are literally communities that are slipping beneath the waves. Climate change is an immediate and real reality for them. But when you can go into those types of communities and troubleshoot with local authorities and themselves and bring our expertise on things like disaster risk reduction, you can find a way to give people a reason to stay because their crops are not going to be so salinated as to be untillable. The roads are not going to be wiped out four times a year during a particularly high tides. There are all kinds of adaptive measures that can be put in place. And I think this is an essential part of that conversation. There are ways to manage this situation to ensure that people have more options. You voluntarily choose to leave your place of residence and move to Geneva to get a job or move to Dakar or move to Bangkok. Well, if that's a voluntary decision that you're making, 
armed with the best information, then fair enough. But if you're having to do it because the forests are burning, because there's insufficient rainfall, that's a completely different matter. Well, on that note, and thank you for that reminder of how climate change is also exacerbating a lot of situations around asylum, around migration, Paul Dillon and Shabia Mantu. And one thing I wanted to say to our listeners, all of those questioners that you heard with all their different backgrounds, they all live in Arizona in the United States. And that is a reflection of our diverse, flexible world, maybe actually should be celebrated rather than worried about so much. Thank you both for coming into the studio and thank you all for listening to Inside Geneva. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening, and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.